Amen. So my wife Shannon and I, we got married the very weekend after we graduated from our respective universities. So we were really young when we got married. Now, I didn't go into ministry right away. We took a year where we had normal jobs. So I was a loan officer, and my desk was right near a woman named Debbie. Debbie was middle-aged. Since the office found out that I was young and newly married, they're like, hey, this guy needs input on how to do marriage. So they said, you should talk to Debbie. Talk to Debbie. Talk to Debbie. Why should I talk to Debbie? Well, Debbie, Debbie's been married five times. <laughs> Kid you not. Like, no! Yeah, let me talk to somebody who's been married once for like 50 years and knows how it's done. Like Deb, but the idea was quantity over quality. Now, I don't say this to shame any of you who have been divorced. I get that. But I think you'd agree with me. Like, you don't want me going to marriage uh, for marriage advice to somebody who's been married five times. So their idea was, well, since she's done it a lot, she must know it. So that's an, a view of valuing quantity over quality. And that's not the way we want to do it, right? So listen, you don't want a lot of spouses. You want one good one, right? So you want quality, not quantity in that. Or what about friends? Some of you have a ton of quote-unquote friends on Facebook, and you go, well, those aren't really friends. Because what you have there is you have quantity, you don't have quality. What if I tell you, hey, here's some good news. We just hired 20 new pastors, and they all stink. And that doesn't help. That's just a big pile of quantity. That's not quality. Politicians. Now said, <laughs> we got tons. Give me a good one. Here's the question. What does Jesus want? Jesus doesn't want quantity. Jesus wants quality. He does not want a crowd. He wants a church. And in order to get from a crowd to a church, what you need is disciples. And when it comes to disciples, Jesus is looking for quality, not quantity. It's going to be very clear in our passage today. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke. We come to chapter 14, verse 25. And let me read to you the bulk of our Scripture passage for today. It says, Now great, uh, great crowds, see there's the crowds, right? Great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brother, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he, is, he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, 
Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whew. And what's happening here is there is a very big crowd following Jesus, and Jesus says, let's fix that. Wait, what? Don't we want big crowds? No, not really. It's getting too big. Let's fix this. And so what Jesus does is he's essentially saying bigger is not necessarily better. He is not looking for a crowd of consumers. He wants a church of disciples. And when it comes to discipleship, he's looking for quality, not quantity. Of course, discipleship is in view there. What, what are disciples? Well, in their culture at that time, they would have had a context for this. You would become a disciple of a rabbi. doesn't mean you meet with him one-on-one at all. It means with a group of people, you follow this guy around. So what that meant is you left all that you have. You would follow and travel with that rabbi. You would learn from him. You'd imitate his life, and then you would export his teachings. That's what it meant to be a disciple. But in order for that to happen, that meant you had to pick up and leave and go with him. You left off. It cost you something. There was a cost to discipleship. Maybe you caught it in our passage. Three times, Jesus was painfully clear. And he said, if you do not do blank, you cannot be my disciple. And on that blank, three times, there was like really big, heavy stuff. Huge, huge costs on the table. And I really respect this about Jesus. See, cult leaders do something entirely different. Cult leaders have a need for it to get bigger so that they feel better. You understand Jesus is the son of God. He doesn't have identity issues. Okay, like he's not going, boy, I hope I get enough people so I feel good about me. Like that's not Jesus, okay? And so instead what he does is he gets real honest up front about the costs. Now again, cult leaders do it different. We're gonna, a cult leader, we're going to hide those costs from you so that we get you roped in and then we'll show you the costs. That's how cult leaders go. Jesus goes, let me tell you, this is going to get really hard. I'll tell you up front so you can choose. I respect this about Jesus. But he's got to do it because at this point Jesus is marching toward Jerusalem. And he knows at Jerusalem there's a cross. And after the cross, his followers are going to be scattered and hunted. The the weight of world missions is going to be put on their shoulders. There's going to be persecution. And so he needs to make sure that they understand there's cost to discipleship. So he's going to be up front. Here's where we're heading. Here's what it'll cost you. Make a choice now. This is heavy stuff. This is the cost of discipleship. Jesus is saying, no, really, you've got to know what's coming at you. And so what he did is he lists out several areas of cost, and I kind of want to work back through them and explain what he's going after here. The first one was probably obvious to you. It was relationships. <laughs> Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Wait, what? I thought we were supposed to love. Why is Jesus telling us to hate people? Aren't we the love people? Now, clearly, the Bible, Bible says God is love. Greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yet we're all about love. Love your neighbor. Love people. We're called to love our brother. We're called to love our friends. And we're even told to love our enemies. 
we're clearly supposed to love. But in this context, hate is an issue of priorities and comparison. Let me explain it a couple different ways. I love all kinds of food. But compared to bacon, I pretty much hate all other kinds of food. See, it's a comparison thing, right? Or, or how about this one? Uh, you decide not to go to your mom's house for Christmas. What does she say? Why do you hate me? Now, do you hate mom? No, you love mom. But in that season, you chose to prioritize something above mom. And to mom, it felt like hate, even though you love her. It's an issue of priority. How about this one? I, I love my wife. Now, am I not called to love all people? Are women not people? Aren't I supposed to love all women? Okay, wait a minute. My wife is supposed to be at the top of the list, and compared to her, everybody is such a distant second, it looks like I hate other women. And so you get a guy who's like this serial adulterer, and he goes, well, I'm just loving all women. Not what you're supposed to do, right? Not what you're supposed to do. So what we're supposed to do is put Jesus at the top of our list. He is our lover. We adore him. And compared to Jesus, everyone is such a distant second. There's like such a huge gap. It seems like I hate everyone else. That's what's going on here. How's this work out in relationships? Well, for some, it's at the moment of conversion. Now, we actually in America don't tend to deal with this as much. But around the globe, some of our brothers and sisters, when they come to faith, if they come from Jewish or Muslim or Hindu backgrounds, whatever, sometimes their families count them as dead. They'll hold a funeral, literally, as if they're still alive, but they treat them as dead. So in order to love Jesus, you got to hate your family. Yeah, that happens. Now, for us, that's not usually our reality. However, a lot of you have dealt with this, that you've moved from the religion of Christianity that your family's used to. You've moved into a relationship with Jesus. Jesus at the top of your list. You're walking with him, well, and to your family, you're a freak. And the closer you grow to Jesus, the further you grow from your family. Who do you love? Who do you hate? Or at least there's, you know, there's kind of this unwritten rule that you don't bring up Jesus and you don't bring up the gospel and you don't bring up church. But Jesus says, no, bring those things up. And now there's division within your family. How about issues of sexual ethics? I know what my culture says is okay. And I know what my urges are and my drives and my hormones, what they're telling me. And yet the question is, what does Jesus say? Yeah, but pastor, if I go with what Jesus says, it might cost me a relationship. So? Is he at the top of the list? What about the fact that the Bible says, do not marry a non-Christian? Which by implication, do not date a non-Christian. But I want to. I guess Jesus isn't at the top of the list. Let's be honest about discipleship this morning. Because there's those in our congregation who are married to non-Christians already and they would tell you, don't do it. And I feel for them, a lot of these ladies particularly, and, and, and they know the closer they grow to Jesus, the more distance they get between them and their spouse. And it's hard. It's hard. Don't do it. It'll cost you. Another example is the idolatry of children that we have in American life today. So Jesus said in there, you have to hate your own children. And a lot of you said, uh-uh, that ain't happening. 
Because what we do is we enshrine our children. And, and you know, uh, King Edward VIII, when he visited America, after he went back to England, they asked him, hey, what stood out to you about your visit? He said, the thing that impressed me most about America is the way the parents obey their children. Huh. We've got an idol there. And life will revolve around, they're the God in the household. And, and it comes out sometimes in missions. So, so you know, the, we, we're hesitant to go into missions because what I want to do is I want to keep my family close. I want to be close to my family. And sometimes the kingdom vision interrupts that. Here's an odd thing, though. Have you noticed that, like, if an adult child gets a really cushy, good job, and it's out in California, you got the family blessing go, but if you're going into international missions, not so much? Huh. See what's going on there? If you are a disciple, not all of us necessarily are. If you are a disciple, that means, yes, you love all people, but they are such a distant second to Jesus that it seems like we hate them. Jesus is not looking for a lot of disciples. He's looking for quality, not quantity. And that's relationships. Now he goes on. He pokes at other stuff. Uh, the other thing it might cost you is uh, your life. That's all. Just your life. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. Now, the problem we have in hearing that is you and I have romantic religious associations with the cross. We love that symbol. You understand to the hearers at that point, they knew nothing about Jesus dying on the cross in their place. They knew nothing about the resurrection. So when they heard cross, what they heard of is a Roman instrument of execution that was horrific, barbaric, torturous, and humiliating. Jesus said, you got to bear your own cross. Wait, what? To help us here today, Jesus is saying, listen, you cannot be my disciple unless you get your own electric chair, you put on the metal hat, you strap yourself in, and you flip the switch. Wait, what? Yeah. It'll cost you your life sometimes. You got to know Jesus is being up front. So I, I watched recently a docudrama on Netflix about Medal of Honor recipients, this highest commendation that our nation has for bravery and courage. And one of the things it said about them is that some of those soldiers, the way they pulled it off was they knew they were dead. I mean, they knew their life, there's no way we're coming out alive. Once they encountered their life as lost, they viewed they were dead. Now they were freed up. They could do amazing acts of courage and bravery. What do you have to lose? I'm already dead. That's what Jesus is saying. You count your life as lost. And now you're so freed up, you can do amazing acts of courage and bravery for the kingdom. Give up your life. Count the cost. Another area he pokes at is, is money. This is going to cost you. This is where he started talking about building this, this tower. It was probably a silo or a watchtower. This guy goes to build it. He starts with the foundation. He runs out of money. He can't finish building the tower. And Jesus is saying, you've got to count the cost. and know it's going to cost you. And so I, but I thought about this. I thought, hmm, an example of a tower that starts being built. <laughs> this sounds familiar. Right? I mean, if anywhere in the world, we've got the perfect example in Cuyahoga Falls right there, right, with Rex's 
Tower. Tower is the word I'm thinking of. Rex's Tower. So, you know, Rex Humber, uh, so at the time, he was the pastor of Cathedral of Tomorrow. He's deceased now, televangelist. And he, he gets a word from the Lord that what he's supposed to do with the church's money is build a tower on top of which was supposed to be a rotating restaurant. Because after all, when you study the Bible, you see it's pretty clear churches are supposed to build rotating restaurants on towers. It's not really in there. So he started this back in 1960. And of course, it was never finished. They ran out of money, and there it sits today with cell phone equipment on it that's about to be outdated, so there'll be absolutely no purpose for this tower. And everybody makes fun of him, right? Mocks him, ridicules him, because he didn't count the cost. Jesus is saying, listen, you got to understand, you become my disciple, it will cost you money. And, and so you just got to know that up front and count the cost, plan ahead. He's being honest with us. He wants quality, not quantity. And then the next thing he pokes at is comfort and safety. Starts getting into this military stuff going on because you're going out to war. And you got 10,000 at your back, but you're coming out against a force of 20,000. So you're outgunned, you're outmanned. Now, you can defend against a superior force if you have the right terrain, the right fortifications, the right weapons, but most importantly what you need is the right kind of soldier. You need soldiers who are not committed to comfort and safety, right? Because when the balloon goes up and, and the bullets start flying, then you get a soldier who runs to a CO and goes, <laughs> they're shooting at me. What do you expect, man? But I'm not comfortable. This isn't safe. What do you think you signed up for? Aren't we just vacationing on Uncle Sam? No. You're a soldier, you're in a war, there's a mission. And Jesus is saying, you understand, when you're a disciple, you, we have a mission, we're in an army, we're at war, and bullets are going to fly, and it's not going to be comfortable, and it's not going to be safe. Jesus is looking for quality, not quantity, those kinds of soldiers. Now, as you look over this list, relationships, life, money, comfort, and safety, Maybe you'll start to notice something from that list. Do you notice they're not bad things? They're actually good things. The problem is they're good things that become ultimate things and they bump Jesus down the list. Jesus' point in this is that that's what will usually take you out. Listen, does a soldier want comfort and safety? Sure he does. I get that. Does he want to see his family? Yes, of course. But what happens is, he says, there's something greater. There's my country. There's the mission. And so I'll push those things down and commit myself to that. But those aren't bad things. What Jesus is saying is the thing that will most likely take you out of discipleship is not something like adultery or lust or pornography or drunkenness or pride or anger. These, yeah, those bad things can take you out. But most likely, it's going to be a good thing that you made an ultimate thing and you push Jesus down the list. That's what will take you out. Then to put a point on it, Jesus wasn't done. He, he put one more thing on the list. It was just this everything. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All. You know the song, right? I surrender some. 
Not all. That's the new version, right? And what we're called there, he says we have to renounce all. Now, to renounce means we renounce ownership. It's not that we don't own it. It's that it doesn't own us. Jesus is at the top of the list. Everything's a distant second. Jesus owns us. And he can ask whatever he wants because we hate everything else by comparison. And so this, you see this where, um, let's say you feel a tug on your heart to go into overseas missions. But of course, right away, your, your, your mental, emotional response is, I can't. I've got too much money. I've got too much property. I don't want to move away from family. Well, guess what owns you? Those things own you. You don't own them. They own you. But if you renounce them, now it's not that you renounce them in that moment. We're supposed to renounce them now. And God might let you keep them for the rest of your life. We don't know. But now they don't own us, so we've renounced it all. So 10 years down the road, God calls me in a mission. That's an easy decision. I've already renounced it all. He owns it all. We're good. Let's go. We're supposed to renounce it all. You can have things, but you can't hold on to things. You can't, at least you can't hold on to things and hold on to discipleship at the same time. You've got to choose. Jesus is being very honest. Mark Driscoll had a great way of putting it. He said, salvation costs you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. Salvation occurs in a moment. Discipleship takes a lifetime. Salvation is something that God does for you. Discipleship is something you do with God. It'll cost you everything. Jesus is looking for Quality, not quantity. <laughs> what he's going to do next is Jesus is basically going to say two more things, two more verses. He's going to, it almost seems stapled on to the end. It's this weird transition. Look, look he starts out, he says, salt is good. <laughs> Wait, what? Salt is good. Okay. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, there was a hard turn, the transition there. What's going on? Well, first of all, I want you to understand, Jesus said in the word of God, salt is good. So if your doctor tells you to cut back on salt, you quote Jesus. I'm going with Jesus. Salt is good, right? No, that's not the issue. The issue here is that salt is valuable, Okay. So back in that day, you would eat the same thing day after day, week after week. So spice is very valuable. So salt, some flavor, oh, it's very important. As well, it has healing properties, preservative properties to it. Very valuable commodity. Have you heard the phrase, that guy is not worth his salt? It's because there was a period where some soldiers were paid with salt because that was a tradable commodity. It was so valuable. Very valuable stuff. But not if salt loses its saltiness. How do you have saltless salt? Well, their salt came from the Dead Sea. And unfortunately, it was contained many impurities like carnalite, gypsum, and all that. And so if it was not processed properly, then you would end up with this big pile of white powder that did not have any sodium chloride in it. That's salt. It would be saltless salt. So you'd take your saltless salt and you'd go to salt some meat in order to preserve it. It wouldn't work. The meat would rot. Now, it's not the meat's fault. You understand that? Meat is supposed to decompose. Salt's supposed to preserve it. But if the salt is saltless, then the meat rots, and it's not the meat's fault. It's the salt's fault for not having salt in it. 
And Jesus is saying, therefore, you're useless. Don't be useless. You understand how useless Jesus said that is? He said, like, you'd ruin poop. So, like, okay, what's this with the manure pile? Who salts manure before they eat it? Don't eat the manure, right? But his point is, like, you're so useless, you'd ruin poop. That's how useless salt and salt is. Don't do that. Here's the point. Salt without saltiness is as useless as a church without disciples. It's very useless. Jesus does not want a bigger pile of salt. He wants more saltiness in the salt. Okay? He doesn't want more disciples. He wants more of each disciple. Let me ask you this. Is it a good thing that Redemption Chapel is growing? Maybe. If we're just getting a bigger and bigger pile of saltless salt, I don't think Jesus would like that. And so he is looking for quality, not quantity. So what Jesus is doing is he is paring down the crowd. He's got all these crowds and he's saying, let's fix that. Jesus doesn't want a crowd of consumers. He wants a church of disciples. And for disciples, he's looking for quality, not quantity. See, as we've been going through Luke, we have the subtitle, This Changes Everything. We've reinterpreted that today. Jesus, this changes nothing. And and so what we have is people who call themselves disciples of Jesus, and yet our lives look just like our non-Christian neighbors at times. Jesus is there. You're supposed to be a disciple, and yet it changes nothing. That's somebody who didn't count the cost. Jesus is saying it doesn't work like that. If you become my disciple, it's going to cost you family, friends, your very life, money, comfort, safety, basically everything. Do you understand that Jesus is really not a good salesman? Like I imagine the 12 are there going, uh, Jesus, we're going to take over the marketing from here, okay? Like you're just not good at this. Jesus is just being honest with us. Who wants to be my disciple? Ooh, me, me, me. Hands are shooting up. Okay, you understand it will cost you everything. Never mind. Hands go down. And isn't that American Christianity? Of course I want in. Give me the blessings. Oh, it's not going to be about blessings. It's not going to be about health and wealth. It's actually going to cost you a lot of big stuff. And you know what? There's going to be evangelism and you're going to have to grow and there's going to be giving and serving and world missions and foster care. And Ooh, never mind. I'm good. I'm good. If you're a parent in the room, I want to be honest with you about something. Your kids are not fooled. I just want you to think about that. They know whether you are a consumer in the crowd or a disciple in the church. Is Jesus primary in your family's life and everything else is a distant second? They know. Can Jesus ask anything of your family? Or is it more the reality that accomplishments and grades and sports and band and family and money and social status, those things are higher. They bump Jesus down the list. Your kids know. So if your kid feels called, let's say, to international missions, Or let's say she gives up a very good job offer because instead she wants to work with inner city kids. 
or Lord have mercy, worse yet, what if she wants to live in the inner city in order to do incarnational ministry? Does this sound a little bit like Jesus? In that moment, will she be working all, like in accord with your family values or against your family values? In that moment, will you celebrate her decision or will you try to talk her out of it? See, our kids, they know. Because this stuff is not just taught, this stuff is caught. Our kids know. And so there's such a liability within American Christianity, I fear, we, that, that we are not renouncing all and counting the cost. We're not really being disciples. We've tried to marry the American dream to Christianity. But anytime you do that, Christianity always plays second fiddle. And our kids know. Having prepared for this message, I was reminded I saw a clip one time of a sermon from a guy named Wayne Cordero. And uh, it's, it's a little bit longer. It's almost four minutes, but I think you'll, you'll get it. It's really good. Listen, listen to this. Let me finish with this uh, story. We go to China from time to time, and, and uh, uh, we train leaders. And this time we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunan province, and they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room. It's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in and when you teach in China, you start at eight in the morning and you don't get done till five at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around and I said, now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, you're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. I thought, no way. I had 15 Bibles and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway. And as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize so many chapters? She said, in prison. She said, you have much time in prison. <laughs> so I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? And she said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because <laughs> even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. I thought, wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. And you guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, why? <laughs> I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. 
you sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like, uh, you become like us, but I will pray that we become just like you. It's good, isn't it? It's hard to hear. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I hope they never become like us. But may we become more like them. You know what? They're disciples. They've counted the cost. And don't miss this. They're free. Oh, they do three-year stints in prison. They're free. We're in chains. Stuff owns us. And it ain't Jesus. He's not at the top of the list. And, and so here they are. They're free. They're not living small, selfish lives. They're not doing mediocre Christianity, kind of foot on both sides. They're, they're living lives of adventure and service and bravery and courage for the kingdom. And they're going to get home and they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And may we become more like our brothers and sisters around the globe who are not consumers in the crowd. They are disciples in the church. What about you? Are you a consumer in the crowd or a disciple in the church? And what is it? Like when Jesus says, unless you renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. What is it that has bumped Jesus down the list that today you need to renounce it? You need to let Jesus take his spot as first in your life and push everything down. What is that? With that in mind, I want to pray for us. And Father, I do say, and not, I'm not going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for us. Because my brothers and sisters in China put me to shame too. I don't have this down. And I, I want, Lord, for you, through your Holy Spirit, to move in our lives, to call us out, to convict us, to make it very clear what is it that we're trying to hold on to and it's keeping us from holding on to Jesus, holding on to discipleship. Lord, I, I know you don't need a lot of disciples, but, but I want you to have all of us. Each of us, you'd have every last bit of our lives. Would you take us there, Lord, please? And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.